the subject of the talk tonight is delighting in the wholesome. I think at the end of the second day, uh, as Sally pointed to last night also, it's quite easy to remember that what you are undertaking is not an easy thing to do. You know, a week-long retreat, you can kind of blast through because the end is in sight. But when you start on a month, the end is too far out there. You lose track of it. You get into a month-long retreat, you, you can't see the end. It's sort of like you're here forever. <laughs> For a while. It's going to feel like that. It's going to feel like this retreat goes forever. And that presents its own challenges, its own difficulty on top of the normal retreat experience. And I remember I came to the end of my first, re- first retreat of a month and there was one fellow who was coming at the end at the same time and he'd gotten to the center a couple of months before me where we were both practicing and I thought, wow, he's been practicing for months longer than I have. He must be really, really far along by now. So at the end of the retreat I, I went up and I asked him, for the only thing I really want to know, does it get any easier? And uh, he said, not as far as I can tell. <laughs> but that was just after a few months. And after a number of years, I can tell you it gets a lot easier. And retreats get uh, a lot more delightful than painful. But it takes a while. So you just have to trust in the evolution of the practice. Even for veteran meditators, when we go into retreat, at some point we usually get challenged to the limit of what we can do or hold or bear. It challenges our patience, it challenges our courage, it challenges our determination, it challenges our ability to hold uh, or to tolerate what's going on. Um, and, And so because of that, Often in retreats, you know, I would find myself in the first days thinking, what would I rather be doing? And the list got fairly long. Well, there are many things I would really rather have fun doing than this. But, you know, the good news is we're here because we want to come out of suffering. And if you're able to bear the difficulties and the pain of the retreat experience, This experience does lead us out of suffering. And it's just kind of a question of of can we stand it while it's going on? And can we find the inner resource to bear that while it's going on? And if we can, and I know, I'm pretty confident all of you will for the time you're here, you're going to feel at the end what it has brought you. It brings such great gifts that don't come any other way that I know of anyway. So in the talk tonight, as in Sally's talk last night on mindfulness, I want to kind of remind us why we're doing this and what we're up to uh, in being here. Because it does take a lot of work. And classically, this is uh, a factor of the path. Effort is one of the path factors in the meditation section of the Eightfold Path. And it means, in classical terms, letting go of what we can that's unwholesome and developing what we can that's wholesome in the mind because it's those wholesome factors that lead us into happiness and eventually into freedom. 
at several times in uh, my practice lifetime, I've spent time with Tibetan teachers who I really appreciate for the kind of breadth of their vision and the openness of their hearts. And it, I had the opportunity to practice at one time with Tolka Urgen Rinpoche, who was one of the great Dzogchen masters of the past century uh, while he was still alive and took refuge with him in that lineage. And so when you take refuge with a Tibetan teacher, you get a Tibetan name. So my name was Ergen, which was after him and his lineage. Tsondrul, the second word was Sondrul. I was Ergen Sondrul in the lineage. And Sondrul is the word in Tibetan that corresponds to our word virya, which means energy for the practice. It's one of the factors of enlightenment, so it's a really important factor. Energy or energetic effort, something like that. But the way they understand it in Tibetan, it means delighting in what is wholesome. So the energy that we apply to the practice is to delight in what is wholesome. That's all of what we're doing here. So that's what I want to talk about tonight. What are, what are we doing here? And I think we can all agree, whatever your aspiration, whatever uh, your view of your Dharma practice, what we all share, demonstrated by our commitment to being here, is a deep love for what is wholesome. Without that deep love, you could not sustain yourself uh, for a month's retreat or for a journey of a lifetime on the path. So let us all together delight in what is wholesome that we're doing here together. While I was on retreat recently, I just kind of stepped back and took a high-level view of what practice is about for me and therefore what I understand teaching to be for. And things got really simple in a way that I wondered if I'm deluding myself. So I'm just going to tell you what I think this is not from the Pali Canon. It's just from my own thoughts. Uh, and see what you think of it. But it occurred to me that everything that we do in our practice and everything that we as teachers say to you is for one or more of three aims. There are really just three things I think that we're doing here. The first is to brighten the mind. And brightening the mind means bring about uh, clearly wholesome qualities uh, that bring joy, that bring energy, that uplift our spirits, that give us confidence and uh, the energy to carry out this path. So that's the first part. Some instructions are to brighten the mind. Another set of instructions has to do with finding inner peace. This is one of the greatest immediate benefits of our meditation practice. We find access to levels of peace that most people only touch for moments in a busy daily life. But we find a way to access them regularly and more and more to rest there to abide with that peace. And that peace brings a great uh, quality of contentment into our life. And the third thing is that we are trying to understand 
more deeply the nature of things. We want to understand the nature of our human experience in a deeper way because ultimately it's the wisdom of seeing the way things are that frees our hearts and minds. So I'm going to suggest that you think about your practice in these terms, brightening the mind, finding greater inner peace, and developing understanding. And you might keep these in mind over the whole month and see if they resonate for you, see if these are in fact where your practice is heading. All of these three are very wholesome factors. And they are factors that grow directly out of our meditation practice. I also think that, um, and I'm curious what you think about this also, that the first level of brightening the mind might be sufficient for (coughs) finding what I'd call normal human happiness. There is a way of being happy and content in the world that's available to anyone who develops these factors of brightening the mind. And I'll talk more about the details when we get into that topic. And then the qualities of peace and insight are really on another track, which is more than normal human happiness. It's the path to liberation. It's the path to really freeing the mind from the deepest roots of human suffering or the suffering of sentient beings. So as I think of it, there are these two directions that one can take meditation practice and dharma practice. One is toward normal human happiness, and there are specific practices for that. And the other is to uh, liberation and as much freedom as you care to reach, and there are practices for that. And so one can orient one's path in one direction or both directions. In fact, if you orient your path to liberation, to freeing the heart and mind, you will cultivate the qualities for normal human happiness as you go. So you might almost say that normal human happiness is a side benefit of the path to liberation. But if your approach is more about um, just finding a happy life in the world, then there is a, a way for that as well. Both paths are respected in the Buddhist tradition. It's not that you have to sign up for the PhD course in our practice. Both paths are respected and wonderful things to do because bringing a life into the world that is a genuinely happy life is a great contribution to the world. The world needs your happiness. It needs your uh, care and positive energy. Especially, it seems like especially now, but I don't know that the world has ever been any different. But certainly it needs it now. It feels to me like we're, we're going through a dark era right now. But maybe it's always felt like that. I'm not sure. All right, so I want to talk a little more about um, both of these directions. First, the path of brightening the mind. The Buddha said that there are three activities 
that are what he called the bases for meritorious action. That means action that's really, really wholesome to do. So one of these is um, giving. One of these is virtue or sila or ethical conduct, whatever you'd like to call it. And one of them is the development of metta and its associated qualities. So in Pali, we would call these the practices of dana, sila, and metta. And what is um, true for all of these is that they lead in the direction of happiness. The Buddha described them in this way. He said, such acts bring what is desirable, wished for, dear, and agreeable to one. That's a pretty nice outcome. To have a root in your life to find what is wished for, desirable, dear, and agreeable. That's a real treasure. And the basic outline is fairly simple. Dana sila metta, generosity, good conduct, and loving kindness. So I'll talk about each of these just in a a little bit um, of detail. This quality of generosity is one of the key virtues in Buddhist culture. And if you go to a strongly Buddhist country, you can't help but uh, feel it. And if you hang around any Sangha long enough, you'll see extraordinary displays of generosity. There's generosity in time, the way people give their time as volunteers to Dharma centers. Uh, You look at the board members of uh, Spirit Rock or EBMC or IMC in Redwood City. There are people giving huge amounts of volunteer time because they care so deeply about what the centers do. Um, There's generosity of money. We have, as you have seen, a new meditation hall going up down the hill. That's part of a $17 million project that is the result of the generosity from many, many uh, individuals to make that possible. And I was really struck by this. uh, Some years ago, I went to practice in Burma. There was a teacher there that I wanted to get to know and whose practice I wanted to learn. His name was Paok Sayadaw. And he's regarded as one of the probably greatest living masters in teaching concentration practice. Uh, The vehicle he uses is the breath, Anapanasati. So I'd heard a lot about him. I wanted to meet him. I wanted to learn how to do that that practice, so I went to Burma to his monastery. He has a monastery in the north, uh, sorry, southeast of the country. And I arrived late one afternoon and met him and I was introduced to him. And I said, um, Saidao, if possible, I'd really like to practice as a monk while I'm here because I'd been a monk before in Thailand and my karma with the robes wasn't quite finished. I'd left a little earlier than I'd wanted, and I still had this longing for the monk's life again. There's something so beautiful about the simplicity of the monastic life. So I decided I'd really like to practice as a monk. Would that be okay? And he said, you were a monk before? I said, yes, for a year. He said, okay, then I'll ordain you. So the next morning, someone took me into town, and I bought my robes and bowl, and I came back for lunch, and immediately after lunch, I got ordained. So, you know, my hair got all shaved off, 
my lay clothes got put away and I was wrapped up in those orange robes uh, that you're familiar with. So I'd arrived, you know, like 5 p.m. the night before and by noon the next day, I was a monk again. (laughs) It was all happening a little quickly, but I needed to do it that way because the rains retreat was starting. You probably know there's a three-month period where the monastics don't go out from the monastery because in the old days they would be walking across the rice fields and ruining the farmer's crops. So for these three months, monks and nuns stay planted in the monastery. So I arrived just at the start of the rains retreat. I was immediately in robes. Talk about culture shock. You know, it was like, sort of like if you'd come in two nights ago and the next morning all your hair was gone. Quite like that. And, you know, taking on 227 precepts. So, um, but before, just before I ordained, I, I had a few hours to transact some business. So one of my students knew that I was going to the monastery and wanted to offer some uh, dana to the monastery because she really believed in what they were doing and in the teacher she'd heard of. So she gave me several hundred dollars uh, to take to offer in the way that seemed appropriate to me. So I got there and I said... Um, I have a donor in the States, we'd like to make an offering, and I think she'd like to offer a lunch for the monastery. So this monastery, there were 750 people practicing, more intensively than we're practicing. 750 people, about 400 of them were monks, something like 150 were nuns, and the rest was a mix of uh, lay women and lay men. So we thought it'd be nice to offer a lunch. So as you know, Burma is one of the poorest countries on the face of the earth. Uh, Because of the corrupt military dictatorship that has taken all the funds, they're rich in natural resources, but it's been controlled by the dictators and their cronies. So the people are very poor, generally, very poor. And this was out in the country. So I went, you know, I was talking to the clerk of the monastery wanting to offer a lunch, Donna, And he said, I'm sorry, all lunches have already been sponsored for the next three months. The poorest country, one of the poorest countries on the face of the earth, and people had already pledged to provide lunches for 750 practitioners because they so valued what those people were doing. And then, so every day, I would come down uh, for the meal, and there was a big whiteboard and the name of the family or a village, sometimes it'd be like a whole clan that would have offered the lunch for that day because it was not cheap feeding 750 people. Would be up on the whiteboard and I'd read that and appreciate it. And then the donors would be sitting off to the side watching the monks and the nuns go through the line and fill their bowls with the food that they had provided. And they would come... Many of them were rural villagers and they'd come dressed in their best clothes and they would be so happy to witness this. They'd see Paok Sayadaw at the head of the line, a monk with basically 60 years in robes, an acknowledged master all over the country, is the first to take his meal from their offering and they would look so happy. So this is the joy and the, the brightening that generosity gives and where uh, Buddhism has been implanted in the culture for a long time, you really feel this uh, very strongly. The reason it's such an important part of Dharma practice is that 
you know, we might represent clinging or attachment like this with a closed fist. And generosity is the open fist that offers what we have uh, to share with others. So it, it actually is a practice that undoes grasping and clinging and attachment. And it also generates empathy because it makes us tune into other people's situations. We have to think about the needs of the people that we're offering to. And that brings happiness in itself. I don't know if you see it this way, but one of the reasons I love the holiday season, and whether it's Christmas or Hanukkah or Kwanzaa, they all are connected with giving gifts. And it's a time of year when a lot of us are thinking about, what can I get to give somebody that they will really enjoy having? And I find there's just this uplift of spirit around those times because of the practice of generosity. Of course, as a kid, I felt an uplift of spirit from a different motive, but the adults seemed happier then too, so that was nice. So if you think about giving to someone or you think about a gift that you've given that was appreciated, how does it make you feel? You feel bright, don't you? You Feel happy, a little bit uplifted. That's the beauty of generosity. The second part of the brightening practice is about ethical conduct or sila, sometimes called virtue. I don't think there's a great word in English to translate this quality, so I'm going to use the word sila a lot. That's the Pali term for it. Um, Virtue sounds a little Victorian, and ethical conduct sounds a little too much like it came out of a philosophy class, so I just kind of like sila. Um, We took the five precepts together when we arrived, and this is the basis for uh, sila for us as lay people. Uh, Monks and nuns take many more precepts than this, but for us, this is a good start. And it involves, as you know, the commitment to not killing, not taking what isn't given, not using our sexuality in ways that will harm others, not speaking falsely, and not using drugs and intoxicants uh, that cause heedlessness for us. These are called and understood in our tradition not as commandments, but as training precepts. In other words, we undertake these as part of Dharma training to learn the habit of being considerate in our conduct. And sometimes it's not our natural inclination. Right? There are many times when the forces in our own heart of greed, aversion, and delusion would lead us to break these precepts. But because we've taken the precepts as commitments, we restrain the acting out of greed, aversion, and delusion, which can cause suffering to us and suffering to others. So we, we hold back or restrain these forces from the mind that can cause harm, so they don't come out in actions. But we know we're not gonna do it perfectly because these forces are strong in us. So we don't take the precepts thinking that we're gonna keep them perfectly. We take them knowing we're gonna break them. But that's okay because then we learn, oh, this is what happens if I don't follow the precept. So they're kind of like our educators. They're our guidelines to learn from. We just do the best we can 
It protects others, and in that it protects us also. We were at a, a Christmas gathering with some friends, and um, the invitation was just tossed out. Do you have an aspiration for the new year? And this could be like a resolution, but being Buddhist, you know, we tend not to take resolutions. So our aspiration, we were just asked to state our aspiration. So just on the spur of the moment, I said, I'd like to go through the year without getting verbally angry at anybody. And so that's my intention or aspiration for the year. So far, so good, but we're only a month in. <laughs> and United Airlines came really close to uh, <laughs> testing me on that one. But so far, so good. So we take the precepts to avoid causing suffering to others, and it benefits us as well. Uh, this is from the Buddha again. The purpose of sila is for freedom from remorse. That means we don't reflect on our actions and feel bad about what we've done. And freedom from remorse is for gladness. So when we can look back at our actions and feel we haven't done things in violation of the precepts, that also brightens the mind. That brings a quality <laughs> of joy to the mind. And then the, the sequence goes on. The purpose of gladness is to let us settle into the present moment, and settling into the present moment is to see things as they are, and seeing things as they are is to awaken. So sila ties directly into the path of awakening. And here's another thing the Buddha said about this. He said, there are four kinds of bliss available to lay people. I think there are more, but here, here are his four. Um, having enough money to get by, uh, enjoying the money that we have, not being in debt, and being free of blame in our conduct. And he said, of these, the greatest is the bliss of blamelessness. The bliss of blamelessness, of reviewing our conduct and feeling it was not blameworthy. And then uh, the third of the brightening factors is loving kindness. It's, you could say generally it's about developing a really good heart. And loving kindness is a good place to start. Loving kindness need, leads naturally into other qualities like compassion and joy. So we see it as a beginning and then it develops further. So all the, the Brahma Viharas, which I think uh, Bonnie introduced this afternoon, are states that uplift the heart and mind and bring gladness and brightness to us. So it's interesting, isn't it? That because metta is the quality of caring about ourselves, yes, but also others. It's interesting that caring about others brightens our own mind. So this is an interesting thing to learn about, that caring about others brings satisfaction, fulfillment, gladness to ourselves. That's a beautiful discovery. Once we have developed these qualities like love, compassion, and joy, if we practice them a lot, they get stronger, and then they become allies in times of difficulty. There are going to be times that we need the support of love, compassion, and joy. And if we've developed them well, that brightness of mind will be a really good ally for us. So to continue the Burma Monastery story, I ordained at the start of the Rains Retreat, I was right back in robes kind of very quickly. 
I didn't have much time to adjust to the environment. And in the years since I had not been a monk, I'd sort of forgotten how to tie my robes. And you may know that if, if you're wearing Theravadan robes, it's basically just a big sheet that you've learned to wrap around yourself and tie with a kind of sleeve. Part of it gets formed into a sleeve, but that's a roll that can easily roll off your left shoulder. So that was happening to me. Uh, it's called the Rains Retreat for a reason. So the first two weeks that I was there, I hardly saw the sun. I think it was raining on the average of three inches a day. The meditation hall was about a 15-minute walk uphill from my cottage, so I had to do that something like six times a day for the scheduled sittings. The practice was difficult. We were doing meditation on the breath just at the upper lip. This was the only place one was allowed to go. Uh, 20, 24 hours a day if you were awake that much. In sitting, in walking, and in anything else, we were just following the breath here. There was no other instruction. I came to Sayadaw and I said, well, what about when hindrances come up? He said, oh, if you're sleepy, pull your earlobe. And uh, if you're having aversion, do some metta. Otherwise, just stay here. So it's a, it was a very narrow focus. You couldn't really go to explore emotions, much less do loving kindness or you know, just kind of beam out energy at the trees. Um, so that was very narrow. The schedule was difficult. Uh, we were sitting eight hours a day. The shortest sitting was an hour and a half. The longest sitting was two hours. The biggest spider I'd ever seen in my life was building a huge web right on the porch of my cottage, which I'd see every time I went out. And I was eating one meal a day. The breakfast timing just didn't work for me. There was a light breakfast. I only ate lunch, which was basically white rice with stir-fried vegetables and very little protein. So I was losing half a pound a day. And you can tell I don't have a huge amount to lose. And I was losing it at the rate of half a pound a day. So there were a lot of, lot of difficulties in that situation. And then it kind of all came to a head. One morning I was walking back from lunch, getting my lunch at the dining hall, walking back to my kuti to eat. And it was raining, as it was a lot. Uh, I had my bowl, which was very hot, with the hot rice on the bottom. I was cradling it in my left arm. And the lid of the bowl was upside down to hold a little bit of dessert. I had an umbrella in my right hand, because it was really raining. And I was walking up this muddy path, and the robe started to slip <laughs> off my left shoulder. And as it did, there were these Burmese lay people who were kneeling by the side of the path and bowing to me. <laughs> because that's what Burmese lay people do when a monk walks by. And I was trying to maintain my dignity so that they would think I was a worthy recipient of their, of their homage. And it all got too much for me. I got very discouraged at that point. Oh, and I should add, the meditation wasn't going great. <laughs> you know, it was going, it was okay, it wasn't going great. Um, so I got very discouraged and down and um, lost some of my courage. I lost some of my resilience at that point, and I, I really didn't know what to do. I'd asked Syed out about the hindrances. All I said was, pull your earlobe, so <laughs> that wasn't going to do it for me. So I had brought with me a photo of the Dalai Lama, who for me is one of the most inspiring humans I've ever seen. And uh, he was on a little altar that I'd created in my cottage. And so I turned to him, and I really uh, supplicated. 
I was sincerely in need of some some help. And I said, um, Your Holiness, I'm really struggling now. Do you have any advice for me? And all of a sudden, this answer came. And it was exactly in his voice. It was in, you know, that kind of high-pitched Indian-accented English that he speaks in. I could hear him exactly. And the answer came, stay cheerful, optimistic, and confident. A positive attitude is the best support. And then the transmission ended. (laughs) Very clear, and then abruptly ended. And I took in the words and I thought, you know, that is perfect. Stay cheerful, optimistic, and confident. When would that not be helpful? And so I would keep saying that to myself when I would get down again. Stay cheerful, stay optimistic, stay confident. It'll work out. And it was very helpful to think along those lines when I could remember what being cheerful was was like. (laughs) Which was not all the time. But because I had spent time before cultivating loving kindness, compassion, and joy... I sort of knew what those factors felt like, and to some extent, I could call them back into my mind. So these practices, dana, sila, metta, generosity, ethics, uh, loving-kindness, really bring brightness to the mind. And if you sustain the development of these, you will feel brighter and brighter, happier and happier. And I think it's really interesting um, and quite profound that all three of these are relational practices. These are not just going on inside us. These are practices in relation to other beings, in relation to other people, in relation to animals. These are practices that connect us with life. And these are the sources of brightness. That's very significant. That's important. And because they're relational practices, they're available to anybody. You don't have to be Buddhist to do these. You can find these same expressions, the importance of these, and all major religions carry these as important values. And this is also why some of these practices are getting so widespread in the world. (coughs) You know, mindfulness is becoming, you know, it's the new yoga, sort of as yoga was in the 90s, mindfulness is now. It's in hospitals, it's in schools, it's in prisons. It's in sports. So, secret to the warrior's success, who are now 44 and 4. Not to spoil anybody's day, but... This is a quote from Steve Kerr, who's the coach. He said, there are four values I try to instill in my team. They are joy, mindfulness, compassion, and competition. When I read that, I thought he was channeling James. I thought he'd taken (laughs) James's Awakening Joy course when he said that. Of course, we don't have to do competition, but if you want to get into it... No, no, we won't go there. Okay, so those are the qualities that brighten the mind. And if you think about people you know who are truly happy, see if they don't embody generosity, conduct, and loving-kindness. In my experience, they do. These are, the, these are the sources of human happiness. So, then we have this whole other track that's about freeing the mind. And of course, all of you are here for a long retreat, a month or two months, 
And so we're going to talk a lot about freeing the mind. We're going to assume that this is a track that you're interested in and a track that we will uh, be encouraging you to be interested in uh, for the time that you're here. Um, To the extent that we walk it, we free the mind to that extent. And it can be walked to such an extent that the mind becomes fully liberated. And in our tradition, that means from the forces, the internal forces of greed, of hatred, and of delusion. And this is possible for a human being to liberate the mind to that extent that those forces no longer operate within us. So the first of these I mentioned was the deep sense of peace. Traditionally, um, this is called the development of samatha. I think Sally uh, mentioned that this morning. Samatha is usually translated as tranquility or serenity. And the development of insight, which is the complementary half of that, is called vipassana. That's the name given to our meditation practice generally um, and is translated as insight meditation. The understanding that seeing things as they are is what frees the mind. And the Buddha said that this freedom from greed, hatred, and delusion is the highest form of happiness. And this is what he called nibbana. So this is where the path of uh, mindfulness and the Eightfold Path is leading. It's heading in that direction. We can choose to walk it as far as we want, but for all of us, that's the direction that it's going in when we apply the factors of the Eightfold Path. So I just want to talk briefly about the quality of peace and the quality of insight by focusing on two factors in the path. With peace, I want to talk a little bit about the path factor called right concentration, sama samadhi. And this refers to a mind that has become composed, collected, and stable in the present moment. And you've all experienced this to greater or lesser degrees. When you feel yourself really arrive in the present moment, and you can connect with two or three breaths in a row, and thoughts aren't shoving you away out of the moment for a while, that is the first indicator of this quality of samadhi or collectedness. I invite you to examine that experience because I think what you'll find is there's a strength and a stability in that way of being that is very satisfying because it is starting to touch into this quality of inner peace. It gives the mind a great source of uh, strength And that is satisfying. Concentration develops just from uh, frequent moments of mindfulness. The more continuous the moments of mindfulness are, the sooner the quality of the steadiness will uh, develop. So you don't have to press for concentration You don't have to think, oh, I'm going to try for concentration now. All you have to do is be mindful in each moment when you have a choice. And the moments of mindfulness do the work of concentration. So concentration can't be willed, can't be forced, can't be brought about um, by active volition. But by volition, you can pay attention. And moments of paying attention leads to this quality of being present. 
This is just like a law of gravity. This is the way it happens. So don't think, I can't do this. I'll never know concentration. That's beyond me. All you have to do is be mindful as much as you can, and this will develop. I love this quote from uh, Joseph's first teacher, Manindraji. If you sit and know that you're sitting, the whole of the Dharma will unfold for you. This is the trust in mindfulness, just simple mindfulness. So this will bring about that sense of stillness and peace that then becomes the foundation for understanding. When the mind is still, it can see more clearly. So the insight piece is about understanding the nature of things. In the Eightfold Path, it's represented by the first two path factors, which are right view and right intention. So of these, I want to talk specifically about right view. It's the first step in the Eightfold Path, and it's the most important. All the Eightfold Path is there to generate the factor of right view. But we have to start with it so that we get on the right track from the beginning, but then everything else feeds into it. Concentration feeds into seeing things the way they are. So classically, the four no, the uh, right view is defined as understanding the four noble truths. So sometimes it's a little tricky, you know, what does right view mean? Think of it as understanding the four noble truths. We'll talk a lot more about these as we go, but the four noble truths are suffering, the cause of suffering, the end of suffering, and the way to the end of suffering. Because, obviously, suffering and its end are the aim of the Eightfold Path. That's what the path is all about. That's what the Buddha's liberation teachings are all about. And of course, this is a big field. The field of suffering is huge, you know, in our world, and it's always been huge. So I want to read this from a research project. According to a study just released by scientists at Duke University, life is too hard. Authors of the 1,200-page study were hesitant to single out any particular factors <laughs> responsible for making life tough. A surprise, they say, is that they found so many. Before the study was undertaken, researchers had assumed by positive logic that life could not be that bad. <laughs> As the data accumulated, however, they provided incontrovertible proof that human endurance equals just a tiny fraction of what it should be, given everything it must put up with. Nine out of ten of the respondents, identified by just their initials for the purpose of the survey, stated that they would give up completely if they knew how. <laughs> the remainder also didn't see the point of going, any, going on any longer, but still clung to a slight hope for something in the mail. <laughs> in a personal note in the afterward, researchers stated that, statistically speaking, life is, quote, just too much, and as yet, they have no plausible theory how anyone gets through it at all. <laughs> so, science confirming what we already know. You may feel like this here sometimes. Life is just too hard or practice is just too hard. Unfortunately, <laughs> your chance of getting something in the mail has gone away. So. <laughs> too bad. 
So the Four Noble Truths are all about understanding suffering and coming to its end. But the Noble Truths are not just things that we believe in. These aren't just concepts that we're supposed to adopt. The Four Noble Truths are calls to action, and every truth has its own call and its own action. So the first Noble Truth, the truth of suffering, the Buddha said, it's to be understood. That's our call, to understand what creates suffering. So of course we want to understand it for ourselves. Where does our own personal suffering originate from? And you know, how is it created and maintained? So this is a key focus for our practice during this period, during this month or two months. How does suffering arise in our direct experience, moment by moment? So this is our call, especially on retreat. We have generated, you all have generated the time and space in your life to devote to the examination of this question. How can I understand suffering and therefore hopefully release it? In the world, and to some extent here too, we want to understand this on a broader level, not just our personal suffering. We also want to understand the social suffering and the suffering in the world that is avoidable if we understand correctly. So I think some of the really important issues of our time to understand how our attitudes, which we haven't examined closely, may be helping to perpetuate racial injustice in the world. This is a calling especially for white people today. For all of us to understand how our actions and our use of resources are contributing to the climate crisis that could overwhelm many human beings, many creatures, and change the environment for a long time to come. For us all to understand how our habits of eating are landing on the animals who have some role in the production of that food. What is the suffering like in their realm? as they are slaughtered or as they are used for milk or eggs or whatever. Also the result, direct result of our own actions. So we want to understand these issues uh, socially and in the world and in retreat. We especially want to look at our own suffering. Then the second part, the second noble truth, the cause of suffering is to be abandoned. And that is identified as craving. So we are encouraged to abandon craving, which is a synonym for greed, hatred, and delusion. They cover the same ground. So we're asked, how can we give up greed? How can we give up hatred? How can we give up confusion? And first, you know, comes the acknowledgement that these are forces in our own hearts and minds. We are being asked to give up deep forces that are that are part of us. There's this very moving scene in the movie Kundun. I don't know if you saw Kundun. It was a Scorsese film about the life of the Dalai Lama. And in it, he's recounting, uh, or Scorsese shows actually, the young Dalai Lama being tutored when he still lived in the Potala Palace before the invasion of his country. And his tutors were grilling him on the meaning of the second noble truth. And he said, oh, the second noble truth is the cause of suffering is craving. They said, no, 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 make it more personal. What does it mean to you? 
And he said, uh, oh, something like, second noble truth, that's because I have craving. I said, no, 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 that's too general. Make it, what does it mean to you? And finally he said, the cause of most of my suffering are the habits of my own mind. And they said, oh, very good, very good. This is the pointer of the second noble truth. The cause of most of our suffering come from the habits of our own mind. And in this retreat, we'll be led to see that again and again. Now, our own mind may have been shaped by forces way beyond our uh, control or wish, may have been shaped by childhood abuse or mistreatment or by uh, prejudice and discrimination and the oppression of racism, may have been shaped by gender discrimination, homophobia, all sorts of forces in the world have shaped our minds. The world is generally not going to fix that. To fix that, we are going to have to look at what we have been left with. And this is the area of the second noble truth. Then the third noble truth is that the end of suffering is to be realized. And this applies both long-term, we are to realize the complete end of suffering in our path, but in the short-term, any time we're suffering, that end of suffering is to be realized, is to be reached. And how does that happening happen? By abandoning craving. So in any moment in which craving has gripped us, which is the second noble truth, causing suffering, can we learn to release that and move temporarily into the third noble truth, the opening to freedom from that instance, that particular instance of craving. So in this way, the third noble truth, the truth of the freedom from suffering, gets realized again and again and again in our practice. That's what we're here for, to learn how to move from the second noble truth to the third noble truth, from being caught to being free. And the way to the end of this suffering is the Eightfold Path, which we've talked about some and will continue to talk about. And specifically here, the development of the meditation portion supported by sila, leading to wisdom. So, right view. Sariputta, one of the Buddha's two great disciples, said that there are two conditions for the arising of right view. The first is hearing the voice of another. That's all he said. But I find this really interesting. And what I understand it to mean is we hear the voice of a spiritual friend or a teacher who comes from right view. We hear someone like the Buddha or disciples speaking the correct understanding. And so what this means to me is that right view is contagious. We get it from other people. We get it from people who have walked the path before us and who have gone further on the path than we have. And by listening to them and their understanding of the world, themselves, us, the path, and practice, that draws us into alignment with right view, which is, as I understand it, the way the Buddha saw the world and saw our situation centered around the Four Noble Truths which is 
How do we orient our lives around suffering and its end as calls to action? This is what right view is about, orienting our lives around these truths. And this is the best environment I know of to do that. So, um, continuing to really listen as we attempt to talk about these truths as best as we understand them and can communicate them. Not that you have to agree with us on everything, but just to understand part of what we're trying to do is share right view and align us all in that direction. The second part is wise attention. And wise attention means, is your attention going into something that's going to be helpful for you? Because where we give our attention, there we give our energy. There we invest our care and the resources of our heart and mind. So, a simple question is, where was your attention today? Was it on Four Noble Truths? Could you see the suffering of the moment as a noble truth? Or was it going into a lot of thinking about uh, personal problems? I mean, that naturally happens. It's like personal problems have kind of the pull of gravity when we get into silence. It's like, you know, if you've chipped a part of your tooth off, your tongue goes looking for it all the time, just keep wanting to feel that chip that's absent. Personal problems are like that. When there's a personal problem that's in our mind, thoughts want to go there and kind of figure it out. Thinking seldom gets us through personal problems. What tends to get us through personal problems is dropping to a deeper level of silence and having a new understanding. So I just want to recommend, as thoughts come up that are centering around personal problems, see if you can say, not now. Return the attention to the present moment. Giving the attention to the present moment is wise attention. Even if the attention is a hindrance. Okay, In this moment, I'm feeling confused. Good. Mindfulness knows confusion. In this moment, I'm feeling worry. Good. Mindfulness knows worry. This is wise attention. But dwelling with thoughts isn't so helpful. And so we want to learn not to give all our attention in that direction. So this is the unfolding of uh, right view and the eightfold path. And then this is the, the way to free the mind, either a little bit or all the way. So one of the things people ask, you know, in a retreat in daily life, is that really possible to free the mind all the way? which is asking, is full enlightenment a real possibility today? So I want to just close with this reading from the autobiography of a teacher named Ajahn Liam. Ajahn Liam is the current abbot of Wat Bapong in Thailand, which is the monastery founded by Ajahn Chah, who was Jack Cornfield's teacher and Ajahn Sumedho's teacher. So this is a story of his practice Uh, when he was a monk under Ajahn Chah, uh, going back to the year 1969. So Ajahn Liam is older now, but this is from his practice when he was a younger monk, still practicing under the direction of Ajahn Chah. Around the middle of the rainy season, Lungpa Chah, Lungpa just means um, spiritual father. It's another word for Ajahn. Lungpa Chah encouraged the monks to practice with special intensity. So Ajahn Liam increased his efforts and results became evident. 
Keeping this teaching in my mind, I kept on meditating. Normally I would sit in meditation until about 10 or 11 p.m. and then stop to have a rest, but on this day I continued sitting without moving or making the slightest change in posture. A feeling of peacefulness shot up and pervaded throughout the whole body, as if something were taking hold over it. It felt cool, a coolness that suffused the whole body, an experience of the whole body becoming completely light and at ease, cool, peaceful, quiet, and still. The only experience left was that of utter peace and stillness. This experience continued on throughout the whole year, not just for a day or two. In fact, it has continued on unchanging for many years, all from that one time. All the suffering that arises with kilesas that had bothered me before, I don't know where they all disappeared to. This is the kind of peace and tranquility that arose. There isn't anything to be concerned about as far as how various things exist. As concerns dukkha, I don't know what dukkha is like. Questioning myself about dukkha, there wasn't any. The experience of this feeling has lasted continuously all the time since then. There has been no change all the way up to the present day. So let's just sit for a minute together and we'll let the words settle. Questioning myself about dukkha, there wasn't any. This same state still lasts on, and it has been stable, continuous, and without change. So thank you for your kind attention this evening. And we have now about uh, 30 minutes for walking, and then we'll have the last sitting again with chanting at nine o'clock. So if you have energy, please come. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.